welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 44. Last week, I wrapped up with Shoshak I, the first pharaoh of the 22nd dynasty. And, as an aside, I also started the podcast saying it was Episode 42, and that error somehow made it through the editing process, and now will live on forever. Obviously, it was Chapter 2, Episode 43, and this is 44. And all of this places us square in the Third Intermediate Period. At this time, all biblical historians agree that the Israelites were settled in the land formerly known as Canaan. And, due to many factors, mostly being rising powers in the East and what would become typical succession issues, hence the name Intermediate, the Egyptians exercised little to no authority, depending on the ruler and the year, over their former captives and co-land dwellers. Now, that's not to say they had no influence at all. As far as how this history impacts the depth of the dive I'll take, I plan on following a tack similar to the last episode, mostly a rapid survey through the sequential rulers, but pausing when necessary to cover the known interactions with the cast of characters in the Old Testament narrative. And with that long introduction aside, let's get started. After Shoshek I was his son Azorkan I. As a reminder, both Shoshak and Azorkan, along with their successors, are mostly thought to be of Libyan descent. And despite this being an intermediate period, Azorkan actually had a long reign, about 35 years. Towards the end of his reign, so shortly before his death, he mounted a somewhat successful military campaign to Canaan, specifically against the lands held by Israel and Judah. And it's this from the historic record that is the usual reason Shoshak is identified with Shishak of the Old Testament. Well, the raids, along with the similarities of the names. I mentioned Shishak in the last episode and covered the passages in both 1 Kings and 2 Chronicles. As a reminder, these can be found in 1 Kings chapter 14 and 2 Chronicles chapter 12. In these passages, Shishak captured Jerusalem. According to the Old Testament, Shishak had provided sanctuary to Jeroboam during the waning years of Solomon's reign. When Solomon died, Jeroboam became the king of the tribes in the north, which transformed to the kingdom of Israel. In the fifth year of Rehoboam's reign, sometimes dated to around 926 BC, Shishak invaded the kingdom of Judah with a powerful army of 60,000 horsemen and 1,200 chariots. This invasion was in support of his ally Jeroboam, the king of Israel. Shishak looted the treasures of Solomon's temple and palace, including Solomon's shields made of gold. Rehoboam, who was the last king of Israel and therefore the defeated leader, replaced the gold shields with either brass or bronze ones. Flavius Josephus, the 1st century AD Roman Jewish historian, also claimed that the force included 400,000 infantry troops. Josephus goes on to write that the Egyptians met no resistance throughout the campaign and took fortifications, including walled cities, without a fight. They would also defeat Jerusalem without any struggle because, in Josephus' words, 
Rehoboam was afraid. In the end, Shishak did not destroy Jerusalem, but forced King Rehoboam of Judah to strip the temple and his treasury of their gold and portable treasures. And all of that aligns with the Old Testament narrative, while adding a few details. Well, quite naturally, all of this will be covered in more depth when I get to the history of Israel, Rehoboam, and Jeroboam. And one other note, the 1980s classic Spielberg tale, Raiders of the Lost Ark, relies on these events. It was Shishak who captured the Ark of the Covenant from the Temple of Solomon during his raids on Jerusalem. He would then hide it in the Well of Souls in Tanis. That is, of course, until it came into the possession of the U.S. government and was stored in a vast, unnamed warehouse. No doubt less likely to be found there than when it was behind a mound of snakes. Sorry if I just spoiled the movie for you, but it is almost 40 years old. Now, there are a number of potential problems with the Shoshak as Shishak theory, which should surprise no one considering that their records are from two different sources, one being the victor and the other the defeated. These errors are along with other potential errors in the accounting of the size of the forces, also not surprising. But I'll get to those when I get to that part of the Old Testament. Domestically, Azorkan was known for his many temple building projects, and due to this, in the general economic conditions, the land was thought to have prospered during his rule, despite this being an intermediate period. Exceptions abound throughout history. Azorkan was succeeded by his probable son, Shoshak II, but there's another possibility, and that's that Shoshak was actually Azorkan's younger brother and temporarily ruled, perhaps after seizing the throne upon his brother's death. This theory typically relies on the assumption that Shoshak did not want Azorkan's chosen successor to rule due to his mother being a low-ranking wife. To counter this theory is that Shoshak was his successor's older brother. There's also the theory that he ruled at a later date and the order of rulers has been messed up. Whatever the reason, Shoshak would rule for only about two years. Overall, though, the real relationships remains a hotly debated mystery, as it has been for over 2,000 years. And, in the end, it doesn't make a difference to this podcast. Perhaps the only interesting thing about Shoshak II is that his tomb was one of the few from the era that was not robbed. And this makes him unduly popular, especially when compared to his contemporary rulers. Think of him as the Tut of the Intermediate Period. The tomb would not be opened until 1939, by French archaeologist Pierre Monte, and the opening was so significant that even the then-ruling king of Egypt, Farouk, was present. And despite his short rule, the tomb was chock-full of treasures, an overabundance of jewelry, a silver coffin, along with a gold funerary mask. In a scene I wish there was a photograph of, when uncovered, the funerary mask was placed on the head of the king. Not to forget, but the silver coffin also signals prosperity and power, as this precious metal was even rarer than gold in their economy, so not to be wasted on a ruler you're trying to forget. 
there was something else not seen in other tombs. Besides a 20th century king wearing a 3,000-year-old gold funerary mask, and that's evidence of plant growth on the base of his coffin. This is thought to show that the original tomb was flooded and that he was potentially reburied. And then there was the medical examination. It showed that he was, by modern standards, a middle-aged man in his 50s when he died, which tended to point to him as the younger brother of his predecessor, but still not conclusive. As for the cause of death, it was probably an overwhelming septic infection brought on by a head wound. Shoshak would be succeeded by Teklat I, who was not his son. The conventional wisdom is that Teklat was the son of Azorkan, the pharaoh who ruled prior to his predecessor. Teklat would sit on the throne for about 13 years. In a turbulent decade it was for the country. He did not rule over the entire country, as a local Theban king ruled Upper Egypt. This Theban ruler may have taken advantage of the succession problems presented when Teklat's father, Pharaoh Azorkan, died. It's thought that this Upper Egypt rule problem lasted into the reign of his successor, Shoshak II, and possibly even longer. And this competing ruler was potentially his brother, or perhaps his cousin. Most of what we know about the second iteration of Shoshak is his name, which simply means we know that he existed. This is identified through a couple of pieces of pottery, two pieces in total. Manetho did tell of three unknown kings, of which Shoshak is assumed to have been one. Even his place in the timeline is debatable, as is the length of his reign, but the shorter you think it is, the more believable it becomes. It's generally thought that he is between Azorkan I and II, so that's why I'm covering him now. But he could have ruled between Azorkan and Teklot. It's all really a guess. Either way, soon after the death of Teklot, his son, Azorkan II, took the throne, and his rule was neither short nor unknown. With a reign length of about 35 years, between 872 and 837 BC. But it could have been as short as 22 years, or as long as 39. As a time check, this is when Ahab, among others, ruled Israel, nearly 100 years after Solomon's death. Azorkan number 2 would rule from the northern city of Tanis, and we're beginning to see a somewhat usually followed trend. What a caveat. But the trend is rulers taking the names of their grandfathers. At the time, the competing ruler of Upper Egypt still controlled that region. And at this point, we know a little more about him. King Harsias was Orzarkhan's cousin and controlled a region including both Thebes and the western oasis. He posed a serious threat to the lower kingdom. But Orzarkhan would luck out. Arceus conveniently died in 860 BC, so about 12 years into Arzorkhan's reign. Arzorkhan would seize the opportunity and appoint his own son the next high priest of Amun at Thebes. Eventually, but still during his reign, his grandson would hold the same position. This consolidated the pharaoh's authority over Egypt so that Arzorkhan would finally reunite the kingdom. 
and with this reuniting came increased prosperity and renewed construction. Outside of the borders of the renewed kingdom, and more specifically to the northeast, so in the direction of the Israelites, was the increasing power of the Assyrians. And this led to increasing interactions between the Egyptians, Assyria, and the people in the middle, the Israelites. Despite this interaction, it's hard to pinpoint a specific reference to Azorkan in the Old Testament. Like many of his predecessors, he would expand temples and build monuments throughout the country, so many and well documented enough that it's easy to identify his wives and children. The same holds true with many of his high officials. When he died, Azorkan was buried in a royal tomb in Tanis, a tomb that was later plundered. It too was uncovered in 1939, and despite having been looted, a giant granite sarcophagus was found, as was extremely high-quality jewelry, so fine that it caused a revision of the concept of wealth for the period. Azorkan was likely succeeded by Shoshak III. At the same time, there was a potential ruler named Pami. I'll get to him in a minute. Shoshak III was another long-reigning ruler, ruling for 39 years. At least we're beginning to see some stability, which also means the podcast will speed up. Despite his name, he may not have been the natural assumed successor to Arzorkan No. 2, since the latter was not the former's son. Adding to this is that we're not really sure of any of his bases to claim the throne. We don't know if he was the grandson of a prior ruler, a brother-in-law, whichever. Which seems really odd considering that he ruled for so long. But there are things working against our understanding. First, his tomb was looted. Thoroughly looted. Ransacked. Also, in what was likely his eighth year, the kingdom split. Again. Thebes would be controlled by someone else, in this case, a ruler known as Pedubast I. And let me pause for a second. I've made the conscious decision to follow the history of the Northern Kingdom while only paying glancing attention to the history of the Southern one. My reasons are simple. This is not a podcast about Egyptian history, but is about the history that impacted the Bible and the religion. Therefore, for those lands adjacent to the biblical narrative, I have to draw the line somewhere. Otherwise, the podcast will just devolve into a world history podcast. Should you be interested in the goings-on of those lands, there are plenty of sources available. Having said that, a quick word about Pedobast. His rule was part of what is commonly referred to as the 23rd Dynasty, which essentially coexisted with the 22nd, but in the southern part of the country. There is a competing theory that he did not rule at this time, and was a ruler from a few hundred years later, when the Assyrians invaded. Either way, and regardless of who was ruling from Thebes, it's practically certain that the former united two lands were now two separately governed regions. And with that, back to Shoshak. So, the kingdom split, and from this point forward, the split would stick, at least through the 22nd dynasty. And that's about all we know of Shoshak, save the names of his wives and kids. And it appears that most of his sons predeceased him, so, 39 years, split kingdom, looted tomb. 
a true intermediate period. Number three's successor was Shoshak IV, whose reign was shorter at 13 years, and as a time check, this was between 798 and 785 BC. And, like his predecessor, we don't know much about him. Even his existence is debated. And I think that's the shortest history I've covered thus far. Not even a minute. Next is Pami, who is often confused with one of the previous unknown rulers mentioned by Manetho. The current thinking is that these two, the unknown and Shoshak IV's successor, are two different people. But this could easily shift should additional documents be uncovered. Pami would rule for about seven years, and you're probably wondering why the new name. I don't have an answer for that, but I can tell you that his name translates to he who belongs to the cat, or just as likely, he who belongs to the lion. And the likelihood of either is about the same, as cats were held in high regard in the contemporary Egyptian culture. It's unknown if Pami was the son of his predecessor, and that's it for the one from the cat. Much of this is becoming a refrain. After Pami is the fifth iteration of a ruler named Shoshek, and this one would rule for 38 years, between 767 and 730 BC. Which used to mean something, but recently it has come to mean that we may have a long period where nothing is really known. At the same time, the kingdom was split, so he ruled only the northern territory. We also know that he was the son of his predecessor, and that at least is a bit of a change. There are monuments that attest to him, but they are all in the northern portion of the country, which likely indicates the geographic limits of his rule. But that's not the only thing indicated. He also appears to have lost control of the western portion of the Nile Delta to the Libyans. So, the kingdom was a mere fraction of its former self. The final, well, probably final, ruler of the 22nd dynasty was Arzurkan IV, who would rule for around 16 years. The territory he controlled remained small, but it did border somewhat, well, come close to the border, with the kingdoms of the Hebrews. There is some thought that he may be the same as the Egyptian ruler So, mentioned in the Old Testament, as well as in Assyrian sources. This king is found in the book of 2 Kings, chapter 17, which reads, But the king of Assyria found treachery in Hosea, for he had sent messengers to King So of Egypt, and offered no tribute to the king of Assyria, as he had done year by year. Therefore, the king of Assyria confined him and imprisoned him. End quote. This identification is a bit tenuous, though certainly worthy of a mention. More on this in a minute. As for what is known about Azor Khan, he ruled during a politically fragmented period. At the time, what had been a great kingdom was now limited to the eastern portion of the delta. Even that wasn't contiguously ruled by the Egyptians. Instead, there were independent, small Libyan kingdoms, along with Meshwesh cities. Remember, the Meshwesh are Libyan Berbers, at the same time, and to his east, Assyria was growing, but those kingdoms wouldn't be his downfall. That would come from the kingdom of Cush, in a leader named Pi. And remember, Cush was essentially the same as Nubia, 
the tables were a-turning. More on Kush in a bit. And backing up just a tad, Orzorkon would begin rule in 730 BC. He was likely the son of his predecessor, but even this is a bit uncertain. After about only a year on the throne, the Kushites would venture into his territory. But since the enemy of my enemy is my friend, Azorkan would ally with the various Libyan leaders as well as other independent rulers from the region. It was to no avail as the Kushites picked off those resisting one by one. Arzorkan, though, was deft enough to see the inevitable and made a pilgrimage towards the Kushites to surrender. And with that, so did the other regional leaders. Pai, the Kushite leader, knew that this newly gained territory was too large to rule over with a heavy hand. So, in order to maintain order, he allowed the subjugated kings to keep their former territory, in essence to become tributaries. And with this, the 23rd dynasty came to rule over much of the formerly great Egyptian kingdom. But there still was the looming threat to the east from Assyria. Around 726 BC, Hosea, who was the last king of Israel, rebelled against the Assyrians. In a dispute related to the payment of tributes, Hosea, as found in 2 Kings, sought the support of the Egyptian king known as So. Maybe the same as Azorkan number 4. So, though, chose not to get involved, leading to the defeat of the kingdom of Israel. At that time, the kingdom of Israel ceased to exist, with many Israelites being sent to Assyria as exiles. As a consequence, settlers from both Assyria and Babylon moved into what was formerly Israel. A few years later, in 720 BC, there was an uprising in Canaan, specifically in Gaza, against the Assyrians. The rebels would reach out to an Egyptian leader, also assumed to be Azorkan. This time, it appears that the Egyptians sent a military commander along with troops to the region, but they were quickly defeated. The Egyptians, at least those surviving the battle, quickly retreated back to the safety of Egypt. About four years after that, so around 716 BC, the Assyrians would butt up against Egypt. It seems that no one was spoiling for a fight, as the Egyptians presented a rather small tribute and the Assyrians agreed to leave Egypt alone. And, unlike the lack of details concerning the histories of the previous rulers, we actually know the specific tribute. Twelve large horses. Seems to be a mere pittance. After this, Azorkan disappears from history. Banishes. The current theory is that Bakhoris, who is the leader of the 24th dynasty, may have expanded his territory towards Tanis, and by doing so, driven Azorkan from power, which brought an end to the 22nd dynasty and presents me with a good stopping point for this episode. Join me next week when I'll cover the simultaneous 23rd and 24th dynasties. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. 
You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week. Thank you.